chose a lover when I went bed. Then God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I went bed. Then God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five. God chose a lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five, eight. Let's jump right into it. This is everything I did not say earlier in the stream. This is officially uh, still technically session two or episode two on this mini-series um, called What About the Mosaic Law? This is just everything I didn't get to say. So think of this as like a 2.5, episode 2.5. What I didn't get to say and I'm excited to talk about as it relates to the Mosaic Law is... Um, to, at least in this session, we're answering the question, uh, how is the new covenant better than the old? There are actually some clear scriptures that make the distinction between Jesus and the law of Moses. Not to say that he contradicts it, not to say that he's in opposition to it, but that the Mosaic law in its entirety, yes, the substances of Christ, yes, is fulfilled in Christ, yes, points to Jesus, right? Yes, testifies of Jesus, but Jesus is a person. Jesus is the eternal word emanating from the Father. The Mosaic law in and of itself is not a person, right? But Jesus is the embodiment of what we see in the um, Mosaic law. So I, I think often people conflate Jesus with the law of Moses as if to say they're the same thing. Uh, again, they're not contrasted, they're not uh, in opposition, but Jesus is not a book, right? He's the eternal word emanating from the Father, and you could say that the law of Moses, perfectly fulfilled with arms and legs, is going to be what we see in the person of Jesus. So what I didn't explain earlier, when I was talking about how Jesus comes to fulfill the law, I didn't really explain this well, so I want to say it clearly up front here. Jesus does come to, and we'll see this in a few passages here, he changes the law. Not what is said, not what is true, but the actual function or application of the Mosaic Law to New Covenant believers, that changes. And I'll show you why in a few minutes. Just know this, that for Jesus to change the law does not mean he's abolishing the law. Those two ideas aren't synonymous. Abolishing the law and changing the law aren't the same exact thing. So, this is how we can still say Jesus does fulfill the law, but he does not abolish it, okay? And so when he fulfills, when he re, you know, brings the Mosaic law to its logical end, to its intended end, when he achieves that, um, what's happening there is those 
things in the Mosaic Law which are of the earth, material, physical, visible representations of who Jesus would be, those things have found their intended end in Christ. So, what once pointed to Jesus in a material, physical, visible way, now uh, has brought us to the one, Jesus, who is being declared and prophesied. And I think Colossians 2 speaks to this really well. Colossians 2.16, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Food and drink are things that have to do with the material body. They're physical in nature, right? Um, they are of the earth. doesn't mean they're worldly and dark. It just means they're material and physical. With regard to festival or new moons, those are physical celebrations that take place, actual holidays that are physically uh, celebrated by the people of Israel. Um, or the Sabbath, right? Though these are concepts that are instituted within the Mosaic Law, there's a, there's a physical, actual, material... In other words, these things touch the material world. There's a way to interact with these things. You hold a festival, right? You, you, you keep the Shabbat. You have a Sabbath. These, right, these things that we find in the Mosaic Law, Paul does say these are a shadow of the things to come. Now, I don't think he's saying these are partially a shadow, but that's not their entirety. He does sum up these things as being a shadow of the things to come. So they are a shadow. That is their purpose. That is God's intended, you know, uh, you know, reason behind these things. That's why he institutes these things so that they act or function as a shadow of the things to come, which is that they are essentially pointing us to the substance who is Jesus. Jesus casts the shadow that we see in the Old Testament in the Sabbath, in the new moon, in the festival, in, the, in foods and drinks, in dietary laws, in, in the sacrificial offerings. But he says the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. So Jesus is the substance of those things that we see in the Mosaic law that have to do with the physical, visible, material world, the things that are of the earth. Jesus is the substance of what those things pointed towards, okay? They are not end in and of themselves. They point to the one who is casting the shadow of those things. So, you know, there's lots of things in the law that have actually changed now that Christ has come to establish the new covenant. And the new covenant, some people would say, replaces the old. I like to use the language of the new covenant fulfills or is built on the old. You don't have the new without the old. And the old is what makes way for the new, right? And so lots of things in the law we see change, like circumcision, like our relationship with temple sacrifices, like our relationship with um, the law and the temple itself and the Levitical priesthood. Those things fundamentally changed once Jesus comes to bring the substance of those things. And so I think the function changes now that their purpose um, in one season of human history has been accomplished in Christ. So what we see in the Mosaic law um, declares Christ in a visible, ma physical, material way, right? They're, they're earthly symbols uh, of who Jesus would be. And ultimately, he's the substance. But now he's come. So what do we do with these things? Let me take you to John chapter 1. And again, before we get to this main question, which is, hey, what makes the new covenant better than the old? Or possibly another way of asking it is, 
um, how is Jesus possibly different than the law of Moses? I think this will help us answer that question. John chapter 1 verse 18. A lot of people think here John is contrasting or putting Jesus at odds with the law. I don't think that's what's happening, but I do think he's being distinguished from the law. So, so this is what he says. From his fullness, Jesus, we've all received grace upon grace. So from the fullness of Jesus, who, by the way, fulfills all righteousness and fulfills the law so that we can partake in his fullness as the bride. There you go, silver mouse. From his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. Now watch. For the law was given through Moses. The law is a gift that came through Moses, not from Moses as the source. But the Mosaic law in its entirety came through Moses from God. That was a gift of God's grace. So this is not saying, you know, Jesus we received grace from, but you know, the law. No, the law is a form and expression of God's grace, which Jesus builds on, right? With a new expression or dimension of grace, which we call the new covenant. So the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Is there truth in the law? Absolutely. Is there grace found within the law, like as an expression of God's heart and character, revealing who he is, as a gift to Israel to set them apart from nations? For sure. We did read that in Deuteronomy 30. It speaks to the law, the book of the law, being a witness against Israel. And it exposes our flaws and shows us our need for a savior and shows us that we fall short. But it is still a gift of God to expose our sinfulness uh, or for the nation of Israel to set them apart from the pagan nations. And that truth is ultimately going to be fulfilled and built on by Jesus, who is a better embodiment of grace and truth. So uh, John is not saying, you know, Jesus is grace and truth, but the law has none of that. No, the law, again, is an expression of God's heart, reveals to us the character and nature of God. That's a gift. That's a gift of grace to expose our sinfulness so that we cry out to God for righteousness. That's a gift of his grace. But the grace and truth found in the law is going to be, Jesus is going to build on that with an improved version of what we refer to as grace and truth. So no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Just like the law reveals the character and the nature of the God of Israel, Jesus does that in a better, more complete way. And this is why we can say Jesus is in perfect um, alignment with the laws of God. He is walking, breathing Torah. He is, in fact, the Mosaic law with arms and legs, but he's more than that. He's the perfect expression of the Father. Not just in a written or oral form, but in an actual like living expression, personal form. So in the next three scriptures, I don't know why my eyes are burning today. This is the weirdest thing. In the next three scriptures, I really want you to notice that there is going to be an actual contrast, a clear contrast between Jesus and the law of Moses. Now, again, we're not saying they're at odds. We're not saying they contradict but they're not exactly the same. So Jesus does not equal the law of Moses. He is the fulfillment of that and the substance, but he's greater. They are connected and he does build on that and he does achieve the, the end of the Mosaic law. He does bring it to its intended end, but they're not identical or synonymous, okay? In other words, everything that we see in the law 
is expressed in the person of Jesus who perfectly follows that law. But not everything about the person of Jesus is merely found in the Mosaic law. So he brings a lot of, you'll see, you'll see, okay? So let me show you the first verse. This is why when people say Jesus and the law of Moses are synonymous, I would disagree. I would disagree. I'm not, again, I'm not saying they contradict or are at odds. I'm just saying he is a better version of the grace and truth found in the law of Moses. He is more. He's personal. He's present. He is active. He is the perfect expression of the Father, as opposed to just a written expression or, you know, on tablets or on the book, the, the book of Moses. So Hebrews 10, 28. Look at the contrast. Okay. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So again, the author of Hebrews, here's what he says. You know, when it comes to the law of Moses, you would die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There was punishment for that law. That's why in the Old Testament we see God, you know, bringing these supernatural consequences on his people to validate his law. Because they were still like trying to figure out, is this really the divine law of God? He was confirming it. How much worse punishment though? Not just for those who reject the law of Moses, but for those who reject the Son of God and trample him underfoot. There will be worse punishment. So there's a difference in degree of punishment, uh, whatever that looks like. And uh, there's, a, there's a greater severity attached to that, which puts the law of Moses and the Son of God not on equal footing. Not on equal footing. The, the punishment, the degree of punishment is being contrasted. Maybe not necessarily the law of Moses with Jesus, but the way someone relates to both and the consequences that, that proceed from that, those are being contrasted. Okay? Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to stay in Hebrews for a little bit, okay? Bear with me. Hebrews chapter 1. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You know who that includes? Moses, who gives the Torah, right? Who gives the law. So, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So Moses, who, you know, whom the law was given through as the first prophet, not the first prophet, but as one of the greatest prophets, he testified and prophesied of the coming prophet who would be greater. That's Jesus. And so now Jesus is a better uh, word, a, a stronger word, um, a clearer picture of who God is, uh, as opposed to just the prophets or Moses who brought, who, you know, was the mediator of the, the Torah. Okay. So there is, there is a difference. Hebrews chapter two, watch. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. I'm going to show you that right there refers to the gospel, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a ju just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he is talking about the gospel. Um, versus the Torah, or rather the Mosaic law given on Mount Sinai. 
It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, God did validate the, 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 the law of Moses in the Old Testament with signs and wonders as well, signs of judgment, lots of consequences that came upon people who rejected the law okay, and rejected you know, the covenant. In the same way, though, there's something a little greater and even more severe happening with the salvation and the message that comes through Jesus, which is built on the law for sure, but it is in and of itself not exactly synonymous with the law. Okay, it's different. And this great salvation was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us. So the message of the law of Moses on Mount Sinai was proven to be reliable with the, the transgression and the retribution God would bring on those who were disobedient. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's that kind of comparison again that we saw in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 28 through 29. And maybe this doesn't build a strong case to say that Jesus and the law of Moses aren't entirely synonymous, but there is a degree of comparison taking place to say one is testified even more so, two, uh, one is validated more uh, by God in terms of the, the signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, the resurrection, like that message found in the Son seems to have more of a validation from the Father. Not that we're comparing the two. Not that we're trying to go, which one is more validated? God did validate the Torah. He did validate the law of Moses for sure and confirmed that that was from him. But there seems to be a greater, uh, I guess, I don't know, a greater emphasis or degree to which God actually confirms his Son. Uh, especially in a short amount of time. Whereas with the law, it was over an extended period of time. So all the signs, wonders, miracles we see confirming the Torah, that's over a longer period of time. Whereas with the sun, it's really compact. It's really, it happens very fast. It's accelerated. It's just, he is absolutely confirmed by the Father over and over by so many different things. The Mount of Transfiguration, the Baptism, the Resurrection, the Ascension, the Holy Spirit, Day of Pentecost, signs and wonders and miracles, the dead coming back to life. All of that bore witness to this great salvation that if you go back to Hebrews chapter 10, the author does say there's greater punishment to reject the Son and that salvation than if you just rejected the law. That doesn't make the law any less serious. That's just showing you how God treats those who reject his son, how seriously he takes his son and those who reject him. So now what I want to do is I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 7 because we are going to get to answer this question of how is the new covenant better than the old? We will answer that for sure. But I think laying the groundwork of um, is there a delineation, distinction between Jesus and the law of Moses? I, I see a few. I see a few. But now these are going to be more explicit statements made in scripture about how certain elements within the law have actually changed now that Christ has come. In other words, there is a category for something within the law of Moses that changes function or purpose now that Jesus has come. Now remember, no matter what, the Torah in and of itself prophesies of Christ, predicts the Messiah, the underlying wisdom testifies to who he'll be. Right, so, so what we see in the Torah and in the law of Moses points us to Christ no matter what. 
And Colossians told us that those material, visible, physical things, dietary laws, temple sacrifices, priestly duties, the actual temple assortment and arrangement, all those material things that had to do of, with, with the earth, they were symbolic of what Jesus would bring in a greater spiritual manner. They were shadows. But Jesus is the substance, okay? Now, in previous sessions, we've already looked at several of these things that used to be, that are in the Torah and in the law of Moses that have changed function. We've looked at a few of these. Let me give you a couple more. We're going to go to Hebrews 7, which is where we are now. Look at that. And the author is talking about Melchizedek. Now, I've done deeper studies on this. Uh, you can go watch my Hebrews series. I'm not going to spend too much time breaking apart every single verse. I'm, we're just going to read this in context so we get the big picture, okay? It says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So, here's the story summed up. Abraham wins back uh, his, his nephew Lot and his family and all the possessions from these kings that were coming against the nation that Lot belonged to. Uh, Abraham takes some boys you know, beats them, <laughs> comes back with all the spoil. And then he comes to what is Jerusalem, now in this time called Salem. And the king of Salem comes out to meet Abraham, who has all these spoils of war and was victorious and God helped Abraham. But Melchizedek is the king of Salem. And he's also called priest of the most high God. He blesses Abraham and to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, silver, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Okay takes a tenth of all his spoil, isn't required to, just sees that he should, and gives a tenth of that to Melchizedek. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he's also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now the author is going to compare Melchizedek with Jesus. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. And this is why some people will say, yep, Melchizedek is Jesus, a Christophany, pre-incarnate Christ. I don't know if I'd go that far. I just know they're very similar. They resemble, he resembles the Son of God. And he continues as a priest forever. So, see how great this man was? To whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, right? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, from their brothers, Right? though these also descend from Abraham. So here's the, here's the difference. The, the Levitical tribe within the nation of Israel, the, the tribe of Levi held the priestly office in the nation, right? So God supported them by taking a tenth of the produce and the harvest and the stuff from the, the rest of the nation of Israel to care for the priests, the tribe of Levi. So they take a tenth from their people. But, right, Melchizedek, uh, is given a tenth by Abraham. So this man who doesn't have his descent from Abraham received tithes from Abraham, which technically that's what the, you know, the tribe of Levi does to their brothers and sisters in Israel. But here Melchizedek isn't taking, Abraham gives, right? And he blesses him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, what a, what a statement. It's like, that's beyond dispute. Like you just, you just go in there that Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek? Well, apparently, that's what he's saying. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. In the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received the tithe, right, that, that priestly tribe of Israel, Levi, 
he actually paid tithes through Abraham. And you go, what? How? Well, because he was still in the loins of Abraham when Melchizedek met him. So the author's going, it's like the tribe of Levi who is given the tithe, right? Later on in history, it's like they're in the loins of Abraham and they're giving the tithe through Abraham to Melchizedek who is greater. Melchizedek is referred to as greater than the one who had the promises. And Jesus is related to or compared to Melchizedek in the sense that Melchizedek has no descent from Abraham. He doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. He's a priest um, when Abraham finds him. He's the king of peace and righteousness. He's a priest of the most high God. So verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, now watch, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one that's named after the order of Aaron? In other words, if the law was fine as it is, and the, the, the priesthood tribe of Levi was good as it is, why does Jesus come as a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek, who doesn't technically descend from uh, Levi? Now you can say, well, Jesus does descend, uh, you know, from Levi through, I think Mary, right? Mary descends, he's from the tribe of Levi, um, if I'm not mistaken. And then Joseph, the tribe of Judah. But watch what he says. When there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. Remember how I said, there are some things you're gonna see in the new covenant where there is in fact a change in the law's function or a specific law within the Torah, at, that's func their function and purpose for the believer. You're gonna see changes like that. What do you do with that? How do you know what's changed? Well, explicitly, we at least now have a category, as we've seen throughout the series, that there is in fact a category for laws that have been altered, adjusted, maybe they've, they've met their desired end and been fulfilled by Christ, and now they function differently. So there's a change in the priesthood, there's also a change in the law. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. It is evident that our Lord descended from Judah, right? So you, te you technically identify with the tribe of your father, okay? So Joseph being the father of, of Jesus, you know, not literally, but in terms of genealogy, right? The way you trace it out. It is evident Jesus descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So how is Jesus, who technically is from the line of Judah, the kingly tribe, how is he able to be a priest that represents all of humanity? Well, if there's a change in the priesthood, there has to be a change in the law as well. Watch. Verse 15. So I'm just trying to show you, this passage so far shows not just how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, but how the ultimate Melchizedek, Jesus, is greater than the one appointed by the law, which is the, the, you know, the Levites. You have to be a Levite to be the actual high priest. In other words, here we have a contrast of promise and command. Because Jesus is appointed by promise, as we'll see, whereas Levi is appointed by command of the law. So Melchizedek is better than Levi, and Jesus is better than both. But on the basis of what? On the basis of what? That's the, that's the question. Where is the legal 
terms and conditions for Jesus' priesthood. Like, how does he legally become a priest when the law of Moses doesn't say anything about the tribe of Judah being the priestly tribe? You can't be a priest in the order of, of, of Levi or in the kingdom of God unless, you know, you descend from Levi. So how does Jesus bypass that? Well, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. That's Jesus. And look, he's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Remember, legally, the book of Moses, the law requires you must descend from Levi to be a part of the priestly tribe and serve in the temple or the tabernacle. But Jesus is not, he doesn't become a priest on the legal requirement or the basis of the law. Instead, it's by the power of an indestructible life. So the resurrection, the conquering death and coming back to life is what qualifies Jesus to be the high priest for all those, those who believe in him. He represents humanity before the Father as our new mediator, the perfect high priest that no one could ever be to establish a new covenant. Now remember, if there's a change in the priesthood, there has to be a change in the law. So Hebrews is telling us there is in fact a category for the laws of God to change. Which ones do? That'll probably be a conversation for tomorrow. The point is, we're not making something up when we say that portions of the law of Moses have been altered or functioned differently or their purpose has been adjusted now that we're in the new covenant. We're not making that up. Like, here we go. Here's one example. Only one. Okay. And we talked about circumcision. You know, we talked about, um, let's see, what else? Talked about the, the temple, sacrificial system. All those things fundamentally changed. Once Christ came, accomplished his work. Now watch what he does. He's going to use the Old Testament to, to legitimize what he just said. He's quoting Psalm 110 verse 4. He goes, it is witnessed of him, Jesus, the greater Melchizedek. It's witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's Psalm chapter 110. And apparently it's testifying of Christ. On the one hand, a former commandment. Now this is the language that people who like hold to Torah so tightly. And they're like, law of Moses still applies in all of its forms as far as you can go. They don't like this. On the one hand, a former commandment is what? Set aside. What commandment? We shouldn't just make this overly general. But specifically... The command that if you want to be a priest, you must descend from Levi. That commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So what is the law useless or weak to do? Make someone perfect. What does Jesus end up doing for us? He lives as the perfect representative. He lives as the perfect human. He resurrects from the dead to what you might call the glorified, exalted, perfect state for us, right? Not that Jesus was lacking. We've talked about this in previous episodes. But Jesus is not perfected by the law. He's perfect when he comes into the world and he comes and breaks forth out of the grave um, in a new glorified body that he extends to us. That, that life... That resurrection life 
he extends to us apart from the law, not on the basis of it. So on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, right? This one was made a priest with an oath. How? What oath made Jesus legitimately a priest? Well, by the one who said to him, uh, I think this is Psalm 110 as well, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So that word of the oath, technically, this goes back to the word God gave Abraham about how his offspring would bless the whole world. That's Jesus. So the promise came before the law uh, required you to be a Levite, to be a priest. And the word preceded the law, right? The promise and the oath God made to Abraham, that came before the institution of the Mosaic law. So Jesus is not a priest on the basis of the Levitical law. He's a priest on the basis of his resurrection life that is, um, I guess, paired with the word of the oath God made, not just in Psalm 110 about him being a priest forever, but the word that he gave to Abraham. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. He holds his priesthood permanently. This is why the basis of Jesus's priesthood is the word of God given to Abraham, the promise and the oath, and also the resurrection life of Jesus. Because ain't nobody stopping or ending his priesthood. Whereas with any other Levitical priest or high priest that came before Jesus, their life ended and so did their priesthood. And it would be passed off to another, not with Jesus. He continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. So here we see not just a better priesthood, right? But an actual change in the law. An actual like setting aside of a commandment in the law of Moses because it was weak and useless to perfect. Now, are we setting this aside uh, in terms of this was never true? No, it was true, but we're setting it aside in terms of this doesn't appoint the priest we need. The resurrection does, the word of God, the oath he made to Abraham does, which came before this commandment. The question then becomes, what other commandments in the law of Moses are also going to be set aside with this change in priesthood? I really want you to think about that. Are there any other uh, laws, rules found within the Torah that are set aside or changed or altered or their function or purpose, you know, adapts to the new covenant? Is there anything like that now that Jesus has established a new priesthood? So, um, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, uh, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So the exaltation of Christ paired with the resurrection is the basis of his priesthood alongside the word of God, the promise he made to Abraham. He has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for his, own, his people. He did this once for all, 
when he offered up himself. There's a lot of differences between Jesus and any other high priest. For the law appoints men, now watch, the, the law, the Mosaic law, appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, right, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So, this passage shows there was a change in the law and the priesthood, right? Which means there becomes a change in the covenantal terms and agreements we now have in the new covenant, okay? Let me take it to Hebrews chapter 10 and then we'll finally, finally get to the main question of, which we'll jump back to Hebrews 8, of hey, why is the new specifically better than the old? We've looked at a few things so far. But watch, since the law has but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Oh my gosh, like this verse in and of itself, just the first half of this verse is worth meditating on for the next few weeks. For those of you that are very um, committed to the idea that as Christians, we still hold to the Mosaic law for a sense of guidance and obedience and instruction and Read that verse again. Now, I showed you in Colossians chapter 2 that there's a similar statement made, and it wasn't explicitly like, this is all they are. And yet the author of Hebrews does take it farther. And he says, since the law, in its entirety, the Mosaic law, has but a shadow of the good things to come. In other words, I, I want you to hear what he's not doing. He's not minimizing the beauty of what God did through the law and the fact that it's a gift and it's good. He's not minimizing that. But he is stating how far it can go and how it can't go any farther than that. The law is just a shadow of the good things to come. Has but a shadow of the good things to come. That right there restricts how far it goes. The law doesn't go past that. Its purpose is to shadow what is coming in Christ. It is not the true form of these realities. You have to reckon with that. And then from there, start to figure out. So if it's just a shadow and the substance is found in Christ, what specifically is being referred to? How far do we take that? How much of this now applies to the believer? And we'll talk about that tomorrow. Since it's just the shadow and not the, the true form of the realities we have in Christ, the substance, it can never, by the same sacrifices offered every year, can never make perfect those who draw near. He is not just emphasizing a portion of the, of the Torah. He is not just emphasizing a section of the book of Moses. He's taking the law in its entirety and saying it is insufficient as a whole to make perfect those who draw near. And you go, yeah, that's what we're saying. We're not disagreeing that the law doesn't save. You would say, no, we're saying the law instructs us how to live. The Mosaic law in its entirety still applies to the new covenant believer. Well, hold on. Let's keep reading. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, they wouldn't have any consciousness of sin. But the, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. So he's narrowing in on the actual sacrifices that, you know, coincide with the law in the temple, okay? 
But I don't think here the law is restricted just to the sacrificial laws. I think the law in its entirety is merely a shadow of the things to come, right? And cannot perfect, not just the sacrificial laws. Otherwise you have to go, okay, the sacrificial laws don't save or perfect. What laws within the Mosaic law does perfect us then? And the answer is none. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. Well, hold on. Yeah, God does desire those things, right? Isn't that why he gave the sacrificial system and the laws and the priesthood and the, the animal sacrifices and the peace offerings, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings? I, th I thought God did desire those things. He already told you, these things are just a shadow of the good things to come. What does that mean? The ideal and the eternally perfect will of God is not that humanity would stay at the animal sacrifices with the temple. That is not the ideal. The shadow is being cast by the substance. What we need is the substance that is casting the shadow that we call the sacrificial offerings. So God, while he used the sacrificial system for its intended purpose in that season of human history, that's not the ideal. Instead, here's what those things pointed to. Jesus says, a body have you prepared for me. And the author here quoting Psalm 40, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. This is not what ultimately glorifies God. This is not the full extent of what God is desiring. These things point to the one whom he really desires, his son's sacrifice for us. For the sin debt to be paid and covered once and for all by perfect eternal blood, by the eternal word emanating from the Father, taking on flesh, coming in our place, laying down his life, that's what the Father's will is. Because none of these animal sacrifices could deal with intentional sin. Jesus can. So there's no pleasure, no ultimate desire in animal sacrifices. They're a means to an end. You've got to catch that. They are a means to an end. They're a shadow of the substance. Jesus is casting that shadow. There's a category of this, man. So what else fits under that category of things that were merely shadows and had a function and a place and a purpose in that season of human history for the nation of Israel, but now that Christ has come, their function and purpose changes. What else fits under that category? That's the question. So I said, behold, I've come to do your will. Oh God, as it, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, hold on, I've come to do your will. I thought the will of God are the animal sacrifices. That's not the ultimate ideal. What God does is he works with a depraved nation to move human history forward to the ideal, which is we are the temple in Christ. So when he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Now he's going to give commentary. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish what? the second. That's the same language that we saw in Hebrews chapter 7. Is it not? 
He does away with the first. First what? Well, the first thing he stated, which are the animal sacrifices. But I thought God instituted that for the nation of Israel. Not, per, not forever. Temporarily. Not the ideal. Pointing us to the ideal. Again, what else is it that fits under that category of not ultimate, not forever, temporary, moving us to the substance, Jesus? He establishes the second. By that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Look, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sin, could never perfect the conscience, right? But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for all sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because he's finished, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, this is where people would go, yeah, we're not saying the Mosaic law affects our salvation. Jesus fulfilled that. We're saying the Mosaic law, as far as you can go, is connected to our sanctification and our obedience and our maturity and our spiritual growth. And, I, and again, I would say that is more of a conversation for tomorrow. Okay, I'm not going to deny or confirm that. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. After saying, this is the covenant I'll make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins no more. Then he adds, I will remember their sins no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering of sin. Okay. So I show you that to let you know that there are changes within the Mosaic law. There are adjustments. The purpose and the function of certain aspects within the law, those, they played their role. They were temporarily instituted to accomplish a certain end. Jesus marks the end of it. He fulfills and achieves it. Now what? Well, their substance is Christ. So their function alters with the priesthood, with the law that institutes priests, with the sacrificial system, with circumcision. The question then becomes, again, what else? What else fits under that? Okay. Now let me take you to Hebrews 8, and then we're done. Now we get to answer the question, what specifically makes the new covenant better than the old? Why is this new covenant established by the blood of Jesus better than the covenant of Sinai. And when I say the covenant, I do mean the terms and conditions that accompanied that, which was not just do this and you will live. It was also, here's how to function under this covenant as the nation of Israel. That's part of the covenant. So Hebrews chapter eight, Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Right? So the first thing already is we have a better high priest in this new covenant. With the terms and conditions that have been set up, it is no longer 
okay? It is no longer humanity upholding their end of the covenant. It is Jesus upholding our end of the covenant. And when you believe and you're grafted in him, you're not upholding that end of the covenant. Jesus is, which is why we can go all down these different roads of eternal security. And what does that look like? Number one, you have to understand how the covenant is established. It's not you. It's God holding up both sides. The eternal word emanating from the Father on one side, the Father on the other. It is no longer humanity on one side trying to lift the burden and God holding his, holding up his end of the, of the agreement. It's Jesus comes as our perfect representative, as the perfect human none of us ever could be. And he says, I'll hold up my end of the new covenant, which will be established in my blood. So there's already a better high priest. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, look, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, right? They serve a copy. This is why Jesus doesn't bring his gift on the earth. He brings his gift into the true holy of holies, which the temple represented and was symbolic of. Again, a physical, visible, material representation of the substance, which is the true holy of holies, being the dwelling place of God. Jesus goes in there as our high priest, and he offers his gifts, okay? And they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. How many, I, I really have to ask, after looking at Colossians 2, after looking at Hebrews 10, after reading right here, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. How many more times do biblical authors have to say the same thing until you get it? The Mosaic law in its entirety, which is distinguished, again, from the tablets of stone that have the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic law in its entirety is referred to consistently as a shadow of the true things to come, as a copy, as a material, visible representation and symbol of what is the substance being Jesus, okay? And so if he's the substance, how does that change our relationship with the shadows? Do they fade in light of him? Do they take on a different function? Uh, are, they, are they still the same and now it's just, it, it's enjoyable to do them? Again, we'll answer that tomorrow. I hate to make you wait. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, hey, remember God tells Moses, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. If that first covenant was faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So Psalm 119 here uh, in the comments, I don't know if you're saying that this is the same covenant. I, I just want you to see like right here, this is a different covenant than Sinai. Jesus doesn't, this isn't like same covenant. No, it's different. It's pretty explicit. If the first covenant on Sinai was faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If you're saying this covenant is connected to the Abrahamic covenant where God made a promise to Abraham that his promised seed would bless the earth, then for sure, no matter what, Jesus doesn't like interrupt the logical progression of things. He's the culmination of it. He's the fulfillment of, of every covenant God has made, right? Every covenant. So 
as it is Christ has obtained a better ministry. So that's part of what the better covenant is, is it's a better ministry, a far better ministry. In other words, let me take you to Romans 2.29. Here's what I mean. Better ministry being um, a Jew is one inwardly. I didn't say it, Paul did. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. Which is why 2 Corinthians 3, his praise is not from man, but from God. 2 Corinthians 3 will confirm that. That the word, the law of God is written on our heart. By the Spirit of God. It's almost like the Spirit of God is being compared with the actual ink on parchment or the letters on tablets of stone. Instead of letters being written on stone, it's the Spirit filling us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 3, this is a better ministry. We're filled with the Spirit of God. He marks us as His own. Woo! 2 Corinthians 3, 3, you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So again, the human heart written with the Spirit of God, not even by, with the Spirit of God. To be, the Spirit of God is compared with ink, right? The way you'd write on paper with ink, God writes on His people with His Spirit, okay? So on tablets of stone, no, 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 no. On human hearts. So what's better about this ministry? Uh, we're not looking to external outside tablets that our heart have no relationship with. Now, the Spirit is actually filling us, which means new heart, new set of desires, new purpose, new intentions, all these different things, so that we want to do the laws of God. We want to do the laws of God. It's interesting that he doesn't say the book of Moses he doesn't compare the, what's written on our hearts and our heart being compared with the book and the parchment that was next to the Ark of the Covenant. Instead, he relates it with the, the tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments. Just interesting. Okay. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 also spoke of this. God promises this to Moses. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. So, that heart circumcision is what Romans 2 says has happened in the new covenant. It's a better ministry. Now, we're fitted to love the Lord our God. And we have a better high priest. Again, the... the, um, the Perfect high priest being Jesus upholds our end of the covenant, you might say. And if we're grafted in him, there's no way of failing. Because he is for sure going to succeed in upholding that end of the covenant. Okay. Also, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. It says, as it is, Christ has obtained a better ministry, Right? as is much more excellent than the old, um, as the covenant he mediates is better. It's enacted on better promises. So the new covenant has better promises, right? Not the same promises, better promises. 
the, the Sinai covenant didn't have these promises. Now again, he already explained that the law, Mosaic law, wasn't at odds with the promises. It just presented somewhat of a something to get through to get to Christ, right? Who would fulfill the law later. But know this. Hmm. I'll go here. There's better promises. What are those better promises? Hebrews 12. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ doesn't accuse and condemn, at least those who trust in him. Um, the blood of Christ purifies, cleanses, washes. Uh, Hebrews 9.15 it says he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That eternal inheritance isn't promised to people who follow the law. That promised eternal inheritance is promised to people who are righteous and meet the law perfectly, which none of us ever could. So it's through faith in Christ that we obtain this inheritance. So if you're looking to the law in the Sinai covenant, you won't get the eternal inheritance. If you're looking to Jesus, you will. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So not only do we have a better ministry and a better high priest who will never be shaken and will never change and will never, you know, be altered or, or become less than or, or better. He's not improving. He's perfect. He's finished. He's done. He's eternally the same as what Hebrews tells us. In fact, we also see there's a better mode of existence, a, a better reality, you might say, for the believer. Uh, a new mind, a new heart, a new nature, a new identity, a new status before God. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Ah, very interesting, right? If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been occasion, would have been occasion to look for a second. Um, would have been no occasion to look for a second. That's what I thought it was saying. For he finds fault with them when he says, and by the way, with them, he is speaking to the people that did not want to uphold their end of the covenant and violated the covenant, but also there's actually fault with the old or first covenant. I'll show you why. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah which goes beyond ethnicity, by the way. This is having the faith of Abraham. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, right? They didn't continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them. I love that. So God made a covenant. They violated it. He goes, hmm, there's a problem here. And the people are the problem. So here's what I'll do, right? But also we'll see that the, the problem is with, of course, the people, but the covenant needs to change. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They won't teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord! They'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So... There also comes a better relationship with God in the new covenant. We know him. He knows us. He fills us by his spirit. His laws are written on our heart. We can relate with God in a personal way and collectively as the church. 
I mean, his truth is written on our very minds and our hearts. We're given a new nature to function, you know, and partner with him. And then look at this better promise. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. That's a promise that was not made in the old covenant. In fact, the old covenant stood as witness against the people so that their sins were almost uh, brought up in remembrance. That's why the day of atonement was instituted to remind the people of their sinfulness and their need for God. In this instance, God says, I will remember your sins no more. It's a beautiful promise. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one what? He makes the first one obsolete. Now we've already seen that along with the first covenant, several things have become obsolete or their function changes uh, for the new believers in the new covenant. Things such as the sacrificial system, things such as the Levitical priesthood and the temple, things such as um, the, the actual priesthood itself and how Jesus changes that. Things like the commandment that instituted the Levitical priesthood, things like circumcision. So again, what we should ask is, along with the first covenant being obsolete, what also changes or becomes obsolete? What also changes? And again, we'll see that tomorrow. So, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to what? Vanish away. So the old covenant built on the Mosaic law and the terms and conditions found, you know, in that law of Moses, there's an obsolescence, a passing away. It's vanishing. It's been replaced. It's, and again, when people hear the word replaced, let me, let me phrase it a different way. The new covenant is built on the old, but the new does cover up the old. It's built on it. The old makes way for the new, and the new is not letting some of the old like crack through. The new is built on the old in terms of what was the foundation of that new is actually ready to vanish away and is becoming obsolete because the new covenant has taken um, the place of the old. And again, I'm not, I'm not making up this language. The author of Hebrews himself is saying it's obsolete. It's growing old. It's vanishing. It's uh, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 7, talking about how things are, are um, you know, changing and adapting. So I, I'm, I'm just putting this data forward to let you guys wrestle. And here's the last thing that's better with this covenant. Um, and go read Ezekiel 36. Whole chapter, man. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. Um, I think it's 31. I forget which chapter in Jeremiah, but it's like the same thing. Um, this better covenant um, is a better relationship, a better mode of existence, like a better reality for us, better promises, better high priest and mediator, better ministry, uh, all these different things. So the question then becomes, if there is a new that has, per the language here, replaced the old, there's no getting around it. What about the old is going to um, continue into the new? And what about the old Mosaic covenant is going to pass away or its function and purpose changes now that Christ has achieved it? And that is going to be a conversation for tomorrow. I know you guys are ready for that.
That's going to be fun. That's going to be a good one. Let me let me kind of let you know where we're going. Let me pull up my handy dandy mosaic law notes. <gasps> you can't look at them. It's cheating. We are going to talk about what do we do with the mosaic law now that we're in the new covenant. What do we do with the law of Moses? We're going to look at Acts. We're going to look at the conversations they have and Romans and Titus and Galatians and 1 Corinthians. We're going to answer the question, okay, if there seems to be a new law we operate by, because remember, the law doesn't appoint Jesus as a priest, so what law was he operating by? That becomes the question. And it's not to say the Mosaic law is not how Jesus operated by, but the basis of his priesthood is not the Mosaic law. So the basis of our life, how we function, is it going to be the Mosaic law? If so, to what degree? How much? How do we know? How do we distinguish? We've already seen these categories clearly made in scripture, I believe. Again, between the actual like national, civil, uh, ceremonial laws that regarded the temple and sacrifices, we saw that as being represented by the law of Moses or the book of Moses, whereas the Ten Commandments, tablets of stone, we've seen that distinction. We've seen the New Testament and the Old. I'm not going to go back and repeat everything I've said. So then the question will also become, okay, what about um, the dietary laws and the clean and unclean laws and things such as feasts and Sabbath and Shabbat? I want to do my best to answer that tomorrow when we tackle these issues. All right? So I hope you'll be there. It'll be a fun one for sure. It'll, it'll not be one that you will want to miss. All right? That's it. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. Ken and James and John, I especially love you guys. Holy kiss. All right, guys. I'll see you later. Keep moving towards Jesus. We'll be right back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Do not miss it.